Well, hello and welcome to the Mariner's Library with me, Chris Stanmore Major. In this episode, we're continuing the book The Romantic Challenge by Sir Francis Chichester. This is the fourth part of the reading, and we're starting chapter two. Now, if you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner, and there, for five dollars a month, you can not only support this podcast but also get access to additional, exclusive, Patreon-only content. Now on with the story. Chapter 2. Down to the Starting Line On the 12th of December, 1970, Giles and his friend David Pierce helped me to sail Gypsy Moth from the Bewley River down to Plymouth. It could well have been Gypsy Moth's last passage. She had such a near escape from being smashed by a steamer that my blood still runs cold when I think of it. On a fine sunny morning, in perfect visibility, Gypsy Moth was on passage westward from Portland Bill. Start Point was in full view ahead and bearing southwest. A beam three or four miles to starboard was a steamer approaching from the north or north-northeast, probably out of Exmouth. Gypsy Moth under sail had right of way. I made a mental note of our closing angle, checked our course, was satisfied that all was well, and went below to cook some breakfast for the crew. It seemed only minutes later that, suddenly looking up, I saw through the window on the starboard side of the doghouse the green-painted, rust-speckled iron side of a steamer a few feet away. I don't think I will ever again reach the cockpit as quickly as I did then. Gypsy Moth's bows were just about to hit the broadside of the big steamer. I grabbed the helm, overriding the self-steering gear by force, and turned on to a heading parallel with the ship. The great iron mass was now 18 inches or so from the side of Gypsy Moth amidships. I could not head directly away from the steamer because the stern would have swung over to starboard and been caught by the ugly steel plates and rivets sliding past. I had to keep Gypsy Moth sailing almost parallel to the side of the ship and between one and two feet off it. I feared that any slight roll would swing the cross trees into the side of the steamer to knock her off course and bring the hull in contact. Giles was lying in his berth, hard against the starboard side of Gypsy Moth amidships, and I dreaded the side being torn away by the rough iron with Giles trapped in his bunk. Yet, as the steamer drew ahead, I had to edge Gypsy Moth away, increasing the gap inches at a time, else we would have been dragged into the propellers. One of the crew of the steamer looked down over the side at Gypsy Moth, and I told him what I thought of the crystal cobus registered in Panama. I had reasoned that no ship would turn the point with its busy two-way traffic without being able to cope with any problem a yacht might present. It is true that Gypsy Moth, like every vessel, should keep a lookout even when having right-of-way, but before the near miss I had checked the closing angle and decided that if ever there was a case where it was unnecessary for Gypsy Moth to keep watch on an approaching steamer, this was it. Gypsy Moth had not altered course, nor in the conditions could there have been any appreciable increase or decrease in speed. Steamers should of course be given right of way over smaller and normally handier yachts and sailing dinghies in landlocked waters, estuaries or narrow sea passages, where some of the big steamers can put themselves into danger by giving way to a bull-minded racing yachtsman intent on his rights. But offshore, I think steamers should stick to the rules of the road when they meet sail, and should remember that a radar set is an aid to the lookout and does not replace him. At Plymouth, there was little to do. All the stores were aboard, organised by Sheila at Bewley. 
Arrangements for my radio schedules and my rendezvous with Christopher Dahl at Bissau were already settled. The really important item was to ask Sid Mashford, whom I regard as the most knowing judge of a yacht's likely weakness in storm, to look over Gypsy Moth. As a result of this, he strengthened the stem pulpit and its fastenings, and how right he was to prove to be. He also rigged a permanent radar reflector under the starboard cross tree. While Gypsy Moth was at Sid's yard, BBC technicians fitted a cassette cine camera at the forward end of the cabin top in a gimbaled container designed to stand up to the rough weather. Privately, I wondered how it would last, but it was certainly worth giving it a try. The camera itself had a romantic past, being ex-RAF and first used in a fighter to record air-to-air combats in the Battle of Britain. Gypsy Moth left Plymouth on the 18th of December. It was a foul day with drizzle and mist, followed by heavy rain with a nasty sea outside the breakwater. I felt gauche with the gear and in no wise like a seaman. My heart was depressed to my boots and I could not imagine anything more unpleasant than starting on a big project in the dead of winter in such weather. To make things worse, Stanley Rosenfeld, one of the finest yachting photographers in the world, had been commissioned by True Magazine in New York to take pictures during the days leading up to the start. As I left the east end of the familiar breakwater that runs across Plymouth Sound, Rosie's launch crossed my bows as I tacked and I would have rammed him had I not immediately tacked back again. I cursed him from Plymouth to hell, but he seemed quite unmoved and clicked away with his camera. I wondered if he had done it on purpose to catch me in an awkward situation. Visibility was very bad outside the breakwater, and the movement was horrible. As soon as I had got rid of Rosie, I had two strong Courvoisier brandies with honey, lemon and hot water. Gypsy Moth was pinched up hard on the wind, driving into a rough sea and a wind of up to 27 knots. It was dark at 16.30 and the skies did not lighten again until 08.45 next morning, giving 16 hours of night sailing. In spite of a feeling that I was about to be sick, I wasn't, and despite all the banging, which sounded like a gale blowing up, I had a good sleep. At dawn, a half-moon was showing among some clear sky patches, among gloomy, stormy-looking black clouds. I logged that it was thrilling to be on my way at last. I had looked forward to using this passage from Plymouth to Bissau for trying out Gypsy Moth's paces. I wanted to experiment with different sail trimmings and sail settings, and to see what speeds Gypsy Moth could achieve at different headings relative to the wind. Most important of all, I wanted to get my sail drill slick and fast. For three days I was chafing with impatience. There was no weather worth a damn to me, and over one period of twelve and a third hours up till the early hours of the twentieth, Gypsy Moth averaged only 1.1 knots. Then on the morning of the 21st the wind swung round to the northeast and freshened. At last I had just what I wanted. Half an hour before noon I rigged up the 25-foot spinnaker pole to port and boomed out the 300-square-foot jib which I had bought back at a sail of Gypsy Moth 4's sails. It took me two and a quarter hours to set up the pole and boom out the sail. I had to find all the different items, the guys, the outhauls, the sheets, the pole rest to fit on the stem pulpit and so on and then to remember how to handle the complicated layout, for I had not been able to use it seriously on Gypsy Moth 5 before. All the time, I had to go carefully so as not to make a mistake in a breeze now blowing at 30 knots. But the thin winter sun was shining, dolphins were surfacing within six feet of me while I worked on the stem head, 
and it was exciting because the rig had to succeed if Gypsy Moth was going to clock anywhere near the 200 miles per day target. One immediate benefit of polling out was that the changed airflow put the number one jib to sleep. It had been banging horribly during the night and had kept me waking from a restless nightmare in which someone was aboard Gypsy Moth with a whistle. But I think this noise was due to one of the stanchions which sighed and whistled mournfully as the wind found a hole or gap in it. Two hours after noon, Gypsy Moth was clocking 9.2 knots on the speedometer. This was a rate of 220 miles per day and I felt optimistic and excited. At 16.45, I adjusted the pole height and the guys staying it in position so that the wind pressure was even over the sail. Then I hardened in on the halyard of the polled out sail to straighten its luff and trimmed the other sails, the number one jib, the mizzen staysail and the main staysail. This seemed to pay off and Gypsy Moth was doing up to 13 knots with the new wind vane fitted to the self-steering gear doing splendidly. This vane was much larger than the standard size recommended for such a wind, but was necessary because of Gypsy Moth's speed. Since I had polled out, Gypsy Moth had sailed 28.7 miles in 3 hours and 12 minutes, an average of 8.95 knots or 215 miles per day, which showed what she could do if given the wind. From then on, I was experimenting with trim, rig and headings all the time. For instance, at midnight that night, after some tryout settings of the polled out jib which were not right, I clapped a handy billy on the outhaul of the boomed sail using a rope end stopper because the tension was too great to haul it out by hand. This took some of the curve or sag out of the jib and I thought it was then not banging so much as before when a wave slewing Gypsy Moth's stern to leeward brought her up to the wind and the leech and the foot would collapse. My handy billies are what the old square rig seamen call watch takels or tail takels brought up to date. I fasten a single block with a snap hook attached to it to an eye in the deck and a double block at the other end of the takel has a rope tail to it which I clip onto the boom sail outhaul by means of a couple of half turns and a hitch. I cooked a good supper but I felt so queasy by the time I had finished it that I turned in without eating it. The wind was easing through the night and by the time the sky was lightening at dawn I decided to hoist the topsail. At noon on the 22nd, Gypsy Moth had sailed 212.8 miles during the past 24 hours. I was delighted. This looked really promising. The position was now 150 miles northwest of Cap Finisterre in Spain. In the afternoon, I decided to drop the boomed out jib. For one reason, it was coming aback too often as Gypsy Moth slewed to windward. Also, the polled out sail could not be carried if the heading was brought 18 degrees nearer the wind to set Gypsy Moth on the course required to pass westward of Madeira. An even more important reason for dropping it was that I wanted to test the effect of the change. It took me about one and a half hours to drop and bag the jib and dismantle and stow all the running gear. To my surprise, dropping the sail did not seem to have made any difference to the speed. The log reads... I guess there is wind to spare, and I dare say I could drop the topsail too, but I would like to keep it up for experiment. The sea was roughing up as the evening came on, slewing Gypsy Moth broadside to the wind at times. I noticed on the dial speeds of up to 14 knots. The true wind was now a few degrees north of east and 31.5 knots. By midnight, the wind was gusting strongly and waves were crashing on the deck. Two hours later, I wrote in my log, so ends a mad ride. I lay in my bunk, getting more and more tense and rigid, but wanting to find out what would happen. 
a series of big breaking waves seemed to coincide with freshes of wind of up to 40 knots. Gypsy Moth would gripe to windward and heel over until I wondered if the sails would go into the water. Time after time, the self-steering would end up bringing Gypsy Moth back on course. What a game beggar! It seemed miraculous that eventually it could bring back the heading through 75 degrees with a gale forcing the boat up into the wind. The only snag was that the 40-knot gusts had to ease back to 25 before the gunning self-steering gear could manage to do that. In the end, I could not stand the strain any longer, so I hopped out and dropped the topsail. The topsail seemed to be the cause of the trouble. She did right to the stern of the boat as it was, it was pulling the stern round. For any speed run, I would badly need the pull of that 370 square foot sail, but it looked as if I could only get the extra area by poling something out. I waited to see the effect of dropping the topsail on the speed, which had kept remarkably steady in the 14 hours since noon. The average only varying half a knot between 9.2 and 9.7 knots. For two and a half hours with the topsail down, the speed kept at 9.5 knots, but the going was so rough that I turned 30 degrees downwind, and although the wind was still gusting up to 40 knots, the speed dropped to 8.75. At 9.30 I set the topsail again, this time hoisting it only part of the way up the mainmast and sheeting it to the forward end of the sheet lead track, 15 foot forward of the stern, hoping that it would not pull the stern round to leeward so much. However, I found that I had to alter course more to windward before I could get the speed back to 9 knots. At noon on the 23rd, distance sailed in the previous 24 hours showed as 220.7 miles. Total for the two days, 433.5 miles. This was thrilling, but only until I calculated the fix-to-fix -fix runs for the two days. On the first day of the run, 21-22 December, Gypsy Moth had sailed 212.8 miles through the water, but the fix-to-fix -fix straight line was only 181 miles, 15% less. I was flabbergasted. 31 miles lost of the distance sailed was disastrous. How could it have happened? It was true that I had been only concerned with experimenting to get the maximum speed and had not been concerned to keep the track straight. True also that I had not obtained an accurate sun fix at the start of the run, and that possibly the six bearings I had taken with the DF loop of Corona in Spain, Bordeaux, Brest, Ushant and Round Island in the Scilly Isles had all contained an error. The two bearings of Ushant had certainly had 37 miles difference between them, but the others had met in a convincing enough cocked hat triangle. The DF, or radio direction finding fix, was 30 miles ahead of my DR, dead reckoning, position, and of course, if that DR had been correct, then the run made good would tie in with the distance logged as sailed. Such an error was not a worry now, but if the log was going to overread the distance sailed, due to some cause such as riding up and down the surfaces of the waves, that was a serious depressing prospect for my speed bid, for it meant that Gypsy Moth was a slower boat than I had thought, and that many of my calculations were over-optimistic. When I calculated the fix-to-fix -fix run for the second day, it turned out at 210 miles made good for a distance of 220.7 miles sailed. This was a drop of 4.8% in the distance sailed and seemed more reasonable, though not so good as the 220.7 miles I had been so cock-a-hoop about. It was nevertheless encouraging. I had motor trouble. After the radio session the evening before, I had tried to start up the engine to charge the batteries. It fired for about two seconds quite normally, 
and then it turned over in a dead way as though it was sucking in water instead of fuel. The starter motor turned the engine freely enough but seemed to have no load. On the morning of the 23rd I tried the engine again but it had no kick at all. This was a setback because I had undertaken to transmit a report to the BBC every day of my speed run across the Atlantic. My experiment of raising the topsail only halfway up the mast in order to sheet it further forward and keep the stern from slewing round was a failure. To add to this, it gave me plenty of sheeting and cordage problems in the 40-knot gusts because when halfway up, it interfered with the wind flow onto the main staysail and the jib. I decided that it would have to be hoisted fully and sheeted to the stern and set about doing it. At once, Gypsy Moth was nearly out of control, coming hard up into the wind with waves crashing aboard and all the lee deck submarining under the water. I dropped the topsail and bagged it again and was back where I started. However, this was still my experiment time. By daybreak on the 24th, the speed had dropped back to 8.7 knots and I again hoisted the topsail. Once more it took charge, pulling the stern savagely round to leeward and heading Gypsy Moth into the wind. The self-steering gear could not by itself hold her or bring her back and I had to get into the cockpit with my feet against the locker seat opposite so that I could put all my strength to the tiller with both hands to get back on heading. I decided to try sheeting the topsail to the after end of the cockpit and dropping the sail just a little lower on the mast to see what effect that had. The topsail was the easiest of them all to set and hand, but it caused the most trouble. All that day, except when sail trimming or sailing the yacht, I worked hard and continuously at the engine. The log recorded, my fingers be proper a war to the bone, as my Devon friends used to say, working the fuel hand priming pump, fiddling nuts in awkward inaccessible spots and working for hours with my head upside down, looking at nuts or whatever. Most of the time Gypsy Moth was tearing through the water, lee deck under and there was hardly a place to put a foot down in the cabin among the boxes, gear, engine casing and tools, besides the usual boots and clothing. The fuel supply system was full of air. I expect due to running the engine while Gypsy Moth was bouncing about or excessively heeled so that air was under the fuel in the tank and got sucked in. I had taken a three-day course on this Perkins diesel engine at the Peterborough Works before my circumnavigation in 1966, but now I found I had forgotten everything, so I sat and looked at it between whiles for nearly two days and studied the handbooks before making any move. Well, I logged, I shall be better able to do it another time. I must say that this was rather like a sport, like fox hunting in a small way, chasing the air bubbles from one opening to the next, around the motor, while trying to undo the right nut to make the right opening. However, it was wonderful to hear the motor kick in again and run smoothly after it all. I want to have another go at that topsail and try sheeting it in a fresh place. Well, that's the end of the episode for today. I hope you're enjoying the story so far. Now, if you haven't already, please check out the other podcast, The Mariner. There's lots of seamanship advice there and stories from my life sailing and we answer questions and go off on terrible tangents and things that uh, seem to keep people that are interested in sailing quite entertained. That's The Mariner podcast. Of course, you can go to YouTube and pick out The Mariner there. And at the moment, we're on board with the 40-foot Trimaran Spirit sailing from Antigua to Bermuda and then on to New England. And all of this being made possible by the kind donations of sailors over on patreon.com forward slash The Mariner. Well, that's all for today from the Mariner's Library. I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers. Cheers.